Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. The New York Times reported on page one last week, quote, There is no hope. Crisis pushes Haiti to brink of collapse. The subhead said, Haitians say the violence and economic stagnation stemming from a clash between the president and the opposition are worse than anything they have ever experienced. For comment and analysis, we turn to Amy Willens. Of course, she's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker, best known for her work on Haiti. She's written about Haiti for The New York Times, The Washington Post, and CNN. Her books on Haiti include The Rainy Season and the award-winning Farewell Fred Voodoo. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. Is the current crisis worse than anything that's happened there? Well, the earthquake was really bad, let's put it that way. That was 2010. But yes, in the sort of long aftermath of that earthquake, things have tended to fall apart a little more. There was a lot of uh, relief and reconstruction going on. There was a lot of money coming into Haiti, but not being apportioned properly by the uh, powers that be and by the outside friends of Haiti. And then uh, government was elected um, in a U.S. sort of sponsored election uh, with a very, very low turnout because uh, Haitians don't have that much confidence in their elections anymore. And he won fairly substantively. And his name is Jovenel Moise. He's a youngish guy who really has no experience in politics, but is has been tapped to be president by the earlier president, Michel Martelly, who had to leave power constitutionally and who was also put into power with a U.S. imprimatur and OAS imprimatur. And now Jovenel doesn't know how to run a government. The opposition can't stand him. He's seemingly quite corrupt, but hey, <laughs> join the club, Jovenel Moïse. But the forces of order are not keeping order. And also, when you have almost an entire population involved in the unrest, it's hard to keep the order without shooting people. And they are trying, but not succeeding, uh, to not shoot people. I think about 20 people have now been killed in the protests, which are nationwide. So uh, big picture, historical perspective, you write in the nation, Haiti has always been a leader in seismic shifts in how the world functions. Haiti, for example, I mean, this is the big thing in Haitian history, of course. It was a, 
a slave colony of the French, sugar producing. And then uh, beginning in 1791 and up through 1804, there was a revolution led by self-proclaimed generals who rose out of the slave population of Haiti and who finally beat off Napoleon's forces and declared themselves a sovereign nation in 1804, which was very, very early. And that revolution essentially provided the spark over time for the end of slavery in the colonies and the end of slave economies throughout the world. Imagine you're, you know, not that far away. Louisiana is right there, and you're running a slave country when this revolution breaks out in 1804. So figure that, if you can, my listeners, you know when the Civil War was and when slavery was ended in the United States. This is a good long time before, and it was very scary to... Um, the American government. And in fact, one little known fact about Haiti that I've been promoting for many years is because of the Haitian Revolution, Napoleon decided that the Americas were a waste of his time and manpower, and he pulled out of the uh, Louisiana territories and sold them to Thomas Jefferson in 1803. Uh, And the Louisiana Purchase made the United States a continental country. So thank you, Haiti for making us a continental power. And next historic moment, 1929. Haiti was subjected to a U.S. Marine occupation from 1915 through 1929. Uh, The ostensible reason was too much violence in the streets of Haiti, but it's hard to imagine the United States could have cared less about too much violence. Citibank was operating in Haiti. There were American businesses in Haiti, and they needed to keep the... uh, the streets and the country somewhat stable for those businesses to keep uh, working with cheap Haitian labor and extracting Haitian produce and also to harbor Citibank's various business interests there. But in 1929, after many, many years of a sort of mountain-based revolt by Haitians, the marine occupation came to an end finally. Um, So that was also a very early version of uh, freedom fighters working to uh, ensure that there was sovereignty in their own nation. And now, now you say the local elite has been running what you call a predatory system that's an example of pure capitalism. How does that work? So it's kind of a remnant of the slave state. And there's a sort of mixed, light-skinned elite and a business class who've been running the country now ever since Duvalier left in 1986 and before, really ever since the revolution, maybe 20 years after the revolution, these people began to make their presence felt very strongly. They're landowners, and now they run businesses and import-export um, And it's about 11 really major families. Like whenever I run into a Haitian who I don't know, I always say, what's your last name? And then I know exactly how high up in this uh, structure they are. And they, too, profit from uh, the poverty of the country. They're very wealthy. They live up on the top of the hill that overlooks the capital. And uh, some have plantations in the countryside also. And they use very, very cheap Haitian labor because everyone's starving. And they basically keep the Haitian people at this poverty level so that 
you have to work very, very hard to earn very, very little. You can't save anything, and therefore you can never better your children's future. So they, they keep generation after generation in dire poverty through very low wages, very high costs for a Haitian. And that's why also there is an attempt to leave the country all the time and people die on the high seas and then President Trump won't let them in because they come from a not very attractive country to him. And, uh, and the cycle keeps repeating itself with these same families. I mean, they have names from the revolutionary days running the show. You have an amazing line in your new piece at The Nation. Try to see Haiti as the United States today is run by Trump, but concentrated into a thimble. Well, so Haiti is tiny and the U.S. is gigantic. But what I'm talking about here is really income inequality of the direst kind. Also, I live in L.A., so we have a big homeless problem here, and it feels like it's a reflection of the income equality with a house just sold in Bel Air here in L.A. for um, $90 million, and yet I'm driving through streets where homeless people are living under overpasses, and sometimes I feel like I'm right back home in Haiti. And, uh, you know, the Haitians live in places that, if you saw them, you would think these were houses, sort of, but they're made of cardboard and tin and some wood slats, and they're slapped together by Haitians with their own hands, and then they turn into these sort of city shanty towns that look permanent but aren't really permanent. And they're really, essentially, they're homeless people, but they've built a little home. The current Haitian president, you say, is basically incompetent. Has there been any Haitian president in recent memory who was able to do the bare minimum of making sure that Haitians have food and shelter and basic education? No. But very few have tried. Some have tried. I would say that these are the ones who wanted to. Uh, that's President Aristide, who was roundly run out of Haiti once and then reinstated by Clinton and then roundly run out of Haiti when uh, when George Bush followed Clinton into the White House. And then his sort of protege, René Préval, also tried in a limited way to do some good and succeeded to do a little bit of tiny good. And then he had to leave office. So, And since then, nothing. You know, I would think America, having been so obsessed with Cuba since the early 60s, would have been more eager for Haiti to prosper as a example to play up against Cuba. How important has Cuba been in American policy towards Haiti since the 60s? It's been really important. In fact, Papa Doc Duvalier, who came to power in 1957, and proclaimed himself president for life and was kind of an embarrassment to Haiti and ruled then until 1971 when his son came to power after his death. He was allowed to function as he wished to function because of Cuba's presence there. So he, the United States, just simply was not going to do anything about him. Dictator, uh, killer, uh, headed massacres and virtual genocides on his island. But, you know, we didn't step in with a Bay of Pigs for Haiti. And ever since then, by the way, ever since the Duvaliers fell and Aristide came to power, who was kind of a leftist, Cuban doctors have been coming into Haiti to help with medicine and training of, of Haitian doctors there. So the revolution in Cuba, which helped educate the people, has been very helpful to Haiti 
since um, since the Duvaliers fell. And more recently, I learned from your piece in The Nation, Venezuela has been really important to Haiti. Okay, so Venezuela in history, and I always say about Haiti, you must go back, back, back. Simon Bolivar came to Haiti when he was liberating Latin America, including Venezuela, of course, from the Spanish. And the then president of Haiti, Pétion, Alexandre Pétion, who had participated in the Haitian Revolution, rearmed Bolivar and made Bolivar promise one thing, and the one thing only, which was that in every country he liberated, he would also liberate the slaves. Uh, so there's a historic relationship between these two countries. Now, also, Hugo Chavez, the former and late president of Venezuela, Hugo Chavez developed an oil program for the uh, Caribbean uh, in which, especially with Haiti and his friend René Preval, who was president at the time, he um, would give, would sell Haiti a large amount of oil, would really provide for all of its oil and gas needs at a very reduced rate, the rest of which to be paid back in 25 years at 1% interest, and the rest of which would go to social programs in Haiti. So they would save all that money on gas, and then they would pay for their social programs. And Preval began this program right before the earthquake, and he started to do things with that money, and then the earthquake came, and then everything was thrown into chaos and uh, lack of control, and all this foreign money started coming in, not Venezuelan. And then Maduro came to power, and the U.S. saw an opportunity to get rid of the leftists in Venezuela, and... Um, this new president of Haiti who came to power, they had an understanding with him, Moise, that he would vote against certifying Maduro's ele recent election. Uh, and he did on the OAS, voted against that. And that has made him very precious to the Americans who hated Chavez in part for this very uh, Caribbean oil program because it interfered with American oil companies selling their oil in the Caribbean, and they didn't like that. And this brings us to Trump. We know what Trump thinks of Haiti. Is there something we could call a Trump administration policy towards Haiti right now? No. My sense of the Trump administration is, first of all, the uh, State Department is somewhat depleted on all fronts. And then... If you're not an important country, they don't think about you at all, which, you know, in the past I would say is a big relief. <laughs> but because of, of U.S. and French and uh, Canadian and U.N. policy in Haiti, the Haitian government is really diminished, and, and it really functions more as a corruption-generating machine than it does as a government. What monies come into it are lost or squandered or stolen, and um, it's because it's become so irrelevant, because the foreign powers come in, they distribute money, they don't like to go through the government, because now that it's been turned into a corruption machine, essentially by their policies, they don't want to lose their money there. Not only that, but Haiti is a country of, it is said, 10,000 NGOs, non-governmental organizations, which are foreign organizations that function, you know, as clinics and schools, and they're not registered. Haiti's trying to register them, but it's very hard. So it's like a, a secret outside infiltration of Haitian administration so that the Haitian government has felt for a long time like, well, they're doing what we do, so why should we do that? Let's just do corruption. 
Uh, I know you were in Haiti right after the earthquake in 2010. I remember you said at that point that people were hopeful. There was that Clinton-Bush initiative that was going to bring tens of millions to help rebuild Haiti. I guess that hope is gone now. I think it's gone. And, but it wasn't just the Clinton-Bush monies or, or monies from France and Israel. I mean, everybody chipped in, you know. Even, even friends were giving money to the Red Cross, which failed abysmally. No, uh, people were hopeful because in that kind of emergency, they were working together. Like those big families that I was talking about were bringing their big Mercedes-Benzes downtown to pick up people to bring to the hospital. Mm. So there was a, a degree of, of cooperative effort briefly until the foreign money started coming in, and then everybody was trying to get as much foreign money as they could get. So I think that, in part, led to a, a, a sundering of a collaborative feeling very quickly. And what's happened to the small Haitian middle class that existed before the earthquake? Go to Brooklyn. <laughs> they're in Brooklyn. They're in, uh, they're in New Jersey. They're in Montreal. They're in Paris. They're in many other places where French is spoken. And... Uh, it's been a brain drain ever since the Duvaliers. But every time there is terrible economic stress in Haiti, both the more educated Haitians try to leave and also the poorest of Haitians try to leave. And uh, some succeed. And, you know, what really is sad to me is to see how well Haitians do who get into an economy that works. And if they could just figure out how to have an economy that works in Haiti, then Haiti would be a giant success because its human power is exceptional. Amy Willens's article, Haiti is in the Streets, appears at thenation.com. Thank you, Amy. Thanks a lot, John. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.